0: You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen, and I'm from Nashville Fertility Center. Today, I'm joined by my co-host and friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hello. And today we're going to talk a little bit about blocked fallopian tubes because many of you have probably had issues with those. Uh, But before we get started, I just want to see how you guys were doing. What have you guys been up to? So, Susan, are you still alive in Texas?
1: <laughs> well, I think both Abby and I had some relatively unprecedented weather this last week. So at the time that we're recording this, um, we just finished one of the hugest like winter storms. <laughs> uh, I know in our area, it was the biggest storm that they've had in over 70 years. So oh, wow! we don't typically ever get snow. This was actually our second um, time this year to get snow. And we, it has been a, a it was a, a major struggle for a lot of people. I was personally very blessed. We um, had our electricity. We were only without water for short periods, but I had family who came and stayed with us and our clinic, unfortunately, in New Braunfels was closed for about four days. So I saw lots oh, wow. of people via telemedicine and was having patients do OPKs, and you know, we were just trying to do the best we could with everybody, but we were back full force on Friday, so it was nice to see everybody again and kind of get back into the normal swing of things. So, what was the
0: deal with the power grid, Susan? What, what happened in Texas that shut the power grid down? I never because because I was so tied up with what was going on here, I didn't pay that much attention to the news, so
1: yeah, yeah. So, um, essentially, Texas has its own power grid. And, um, you know, one of those things about Texans being Texans. Uh, so I, I think for most of the time, I think this kind of having our own power grid thing has been around for about 15 or 20 years. And for the most part of it, um, it has worked out fine, but there were some issues and apparently, um, so 25% of our power in Texas is generated from wind energy. Oh, okay. So you have 25% of our system on wind energy and most of it is from wind farms in west texas well apparently when those wind farms in west texas were put in there is an optional heating element um they opted not to and so Uh, 60 percent of our 25 percent went down
0: froze yeah
1: so it froze and so there were issues with that, and then I believe there is this other entity that controls, like um, obviously, how much pollution and stuff from the type of energy you're you're dictating. And they did not raise those allowances during the freeze early enough to prevent mm. some of the downfalls. Because what was happening was we had we had power issues and we had water issues, and what was happening is power was going down. On systems that were affecting water and Mm. so then those systems froze and and so it was and then it caused flooding after they froze and it was this terrible effect so i mean like there are tons of people with busted pipes i know that there are we had two neighbors that we found their busted pipes and found them from their sprinkler systems and backflow valves and stuff but um It's right now, I think if you called a plumber, you would be lucky to have somebody come out in a month. Oh, wow. So it's this is going to take a while to recover from. Wow.
0: What a nightmare.
1: I don't understand how,
2: if it's all Going back to the wind, if the wind provides, if the wind turbines provide 25% of the power and they didn't have 60% of it, that knocks off like 13% that you can't get. So that still means that 88 plus percentage of the power should be able to be up and running if you're discounting the wind.
1: Usually, in a normal year, your highest amount of power that's needed is usually in August because that's when Texas the is hottest the hottest just like it is in Vegas and stuff like that. But
0: sure. she needed more power.
1: We surpassed the maximum that we normally used in August, so the need for power was higher than what it really ever you know should or had been. Because we don't, you know, for like Abby, your house in Tennessee is, I mean, y'all have winter. Okay. Right. I lived in yeah. Minnesota for three years. I know what real winter is. Those houses are built in different ways yeah. Yeah. to withstand that. Our houses are built in a way to withstand 100, 110 degree. T- we yeah. were meant for heat, not for cold. Oh, we don't okay. have the infrastructure To, you know, we don't have anybody to plow snow. We don't, I mean, we can deal with, I mean, usually when we have a hard freeze, you're talking about maybe 24 hours, 36 at the most, the worst are three or four days. This was so... And the thing is, so this is it was, was truly
0: a perfect storm of bad everything that it just can com- one thing compounded the other thing and just made it all worse.
1: <laughs> it was, it was just, everything was kind of adding onto it and it just kept on going. I mean, we had no food at the grocery stores. Oh, um, gosh. I, I mean, the when you went to the grocery stores, there were, I mean, we went one time in the middle of it because we had more family coming in and we didn't have enough food for everybody. And I mean we were in a line of probably a hundred people and there were two lines. (laughs) There were two lines going into the store. Susan,
0: I take back what I said earlier. In Nashville, we had a storm too and people make a rush to the grocery stores. And we were pretty shut down for about five days because it was probably our worst storm in five years, but not a worst storm in 70 years or anything. So It was, it was bad, but it wasn't like that bad for
1: sure. I'm typically the one who does like the grocery shopping before like natural disasters, like like, in (laughs) Texas, we had obviously COVID when everything was getting shut down. And then, you know, we have hurricanes the the shelves were clear and it was interesting because it was, people were buying fresh things because, you know, it was a short-term thing, but people didn't have. They're they elect. They didn't have refrigerators, and so it, and they didn't have electricity to cook. Uh, I think one of my favorite memes was, you know, right now life is like a um episode of Chopped because people were having some of the <laughs> some of the electric. Um, run in and grab your stuff as fast as you can and cook it quick. Some people were on rotating on and off closures of their electricity, oh, so it was yeah. like their electricity would come on for fifteen minutes or an hour <laughs> or whatever. You'd run and you'd have like. 10 like crazy ingredients <laughs> that don't match and you're supposed to come up with something your whole family's gonna love you know oh, that's hilarious and so it was it, it was definitely a um it was an adventure and now it you know it uh, 24 hours ago I had snow on the ground and now it's in the mid 60s yeah
0: that's and, same here. we finally have we're melting out now we stayed in hotels we We, our office was open every day, our main office, but we, I did some telemedicine once from home, but, um, but we had people that stayed in hotels every night because just, we had more, initially we had a bunch of ice, like two nights of just, you could hear the pelting sleet come down two days in a row and it was just like a skating rink and then, then we had some snow on top of it, but. Um, the last couple of days have not been bad. So we
2: both of your patients completely like we're all of your patients freaking out because if you've got a retrieval, you got to go when you have to go like there's we can usually buy a day or two, but you can't buy that much more time
0: beyond that. What I always say is our patients, by golly, they will get to our office no matter what we last year at this time, almost exactly a year ago, Nashville had tornadoes and I literally had a patient that walked about a mile her, somebody dropped her off and she walked about a mile. Well, I take that back, maybe about a half a mile to our office to get her egg retrieval done. Um, all of our FET patients somehow got there the day before and within, you know, like a 10 block radius of our office, they, they get there. (laughs) So we, we typically have people in hotels, so we'll get them, you know, like our ultrasonographers stayed in hotels every night so they could get there to scan. And so we, we made it work somehow.
2: I mean, I remember with Snowmageddon in Atlanta while I was in training, we did a retrieval in our office. It was one of my partners who did it. And she it, it was a patient for a another fertility center. And she lived in a position where she could get to us, but she couldn't get to them because of the geography of the city. And so we did a retrieval to try and help help them out yeah. because there's just no other like she was not going to get out into the suburbs to get her retrieval.
1: It's amazing. So Carrie, what's our question of the day? So the question of the day is a good
2: technical question. It's
1: why is all the ART
2: data on the CDC site on a three-year lag? I expect some sort of lag to be able to track outcomes all the way to live birth, but why so long? So very good question. And what do you guys think?
1: Uh, Number one, you're dealing with a governmental regulatory agency. That's exactly what I was about. I
0: don't want to throw off on government employees, but it just takes a while. It's it's a governmental agency, so and there is a lag. You know, if you think about it, the last person that delivers the last, you know, like last baby in December takes. You know, they we have to wait till that last person delivers that last baby before we can get the data. So it's logical that there's about a two-year lag, roughly. Three-year lag, I don't know. It's it's always been that way, though. It's always been a lag like that. It's I don't know that we've ever really caught up past about three years.
1: Yeah. I, I think the biggest thing, though, is always, and this wasn't exactly what the patient was asking, but when we were looking at SART or CDC data, realize that you need to take all of that data with a grain of salt. So, um, you know, generally speaking, you know it's it's a piece of the information that I think is important, but it's not the entire um, thing that you should be looking at when you're choosing your your fertility clinic to work with. Yeah,
0: and I think we've talked about this before,
1: but but some clinics will kind of set really
0: high standards for people to go through IVF, like really young patients that maybe have a condition where it's pretty they think it's pretty likely they're going to get pregnant. And so, you know, if you, if you limit who can go through to really patients that have a really good prognosis, your statistics are going to be really good. So again, like Susan said, I think you should take what those CDC statistics say with a grain of salt.
2: Mm-hmm. Same with SART. Um, they're, you know, SART you have to pay to be a part of, and they set out rules and the the algorithms between SART and the CDC are different. And they don't always explain what the algorithms are. <laughs> and you can't always figure out why your numbers on one side are really good and the other one are not. Um, and and like Abby was saying, some clinics have really specific criteria. I know a lot of people will will come in and say, well, oh, I really want to go to XYZ Clinic because their numbers of uh, pregnancies in 44-year-olds are the highest out there. I'm like, well, that's great. But they're also looking at patients who have much higher egg numbers to start with. And that's a different population than you know, all of forty-three year olds, forty-four year olds. So those those statistics. I mean, eighty-six point five percent of statistics are made up. And so, <laughs> so you got to remember that as you're looking at the numbers. Um, but,
0: but one thing, one positive thing though, is they always make all of our centers put in the data before the patient ever starts their IVF cycle. Mm-hmm. So, and the benefit of that is you can't people can't kind of cook the numbers you know, as they could if they just put them in a later time, you know, I mean, so there, you know, they are, it is something good to look at, but just use that as one piece of information. Don't be that, don't let that be the be all end all in terms of who you choose. Yeah, absolutely. Word of mouth reference is still the best, not, not necessarily Google reviews or any of that stuff. Word of mouth is still, I think the best, one of the best ways to find somebody that you like. About it. Yeah. Um, So today we're going to talk about tubal blockage. Um, And I'm sure, you know, many of you have had tubal testing and some of you have had some tubal issues. And so Susan, why don't you start us out and tell us a little bit about the physiology of the tubes. Why why are tubes important? What do they do?
1: So the the tubes are kind of a pipeline between the uterus and the ovaries. Um, Now, I always want to let patients know that the tubes in relation to the uterus and the ovaries are kind of like the lungs and the heart. Okay. They're near each other. They work together, but they're, they, they, they all have kind of independent functions. And and so, um, you know, the, I think, the easiest thing to kind of start with is talking about testing of the fallopian tubes because some of our patients, some of our listeners, haven't been through any testing so far. So when you're going through your initial fertility evaluation, um, most patients are probably going to have their fallopian tubes tested, and this is through a. Um, little outpatient procedure called a hysterosalpingogram or HSG. And that's usually sometimes it's done at your doctor's office. Sometimes it's done at a radiology center. Sometimes it's done at a hospital. It kind of just depends on regionally what's what's available. And, What that test entails is they will kind of get you in position like when you do um, your pap smear or they may have you kind of on this flat table and have you kind of bend your legs kind of in a little frog leg position or so. And they're going to place a speculum uh, just like you get your pap smear done. They may apply a little um, kind of cleaning solution to your cervix and then they'll place a little catheter inside the uterus. And then they will put this little um, device over your belly and they will inject that dye and you can actually see the inside of the uterus and see the fallopian tubes and see if there's spillage out into the pelvis um, during that procedure.
0: So do you get exposed to radiation and is there any fear of helping or harming a pregnancy with that test with HSG?
1: Very good question. So very small amounts of radiation. Um, So, you know, this is really something that generally is going to take place over a period of about 30 seconds <laughs> in most cases. And um, now, if you were pregnant, yes, it absolutely could be harmful. So, most of the time, um, you're either going to need to have a negative pregnancy test. Um, or be abstaining from intercourse, or have the HSG performed between certain days. I've, I've worked with so many different companies that have different uh, rules. These are all rules that I, I, I know happen. Um, and so these are um, some different guidelines when you're getting that testing done. Uh, now, the one thing that I always um, try to talk to my patients, HSGs are one of those things that on the internet, they are they get a pretty bad rap.
2: <laughs> I was gonna. <laughs> okay. One of my questions for you is going to be, this is a really comfortable procedure, right? You would do this for fun on a Saturday night, right? They do kind of hurt though, I will say.
1: But they don't always hurt. And, and that's yeah, and the thing is horrible. you can't, you can't tell who's going to have pain beforehand. So, I mean, that's I have right. lots of patients who are like, oh, I've got a high pain tolerance. And they're like, oh my goodness, that was the worst thing in my life. And then there's other people who you think are going to be complete wimps. And they're like, is it done? And, yeah. and so you don't know um, if you can take um, some NSAIDs or ibuprofen thirty to sixty minutes beforehand. I think that does help, but I also think that going into it with the understanding that this is a test to help us get you to where you want to be, which is pregnant and delivering a baby. So even under the worst. Circumstance where you have a lot of cramping, it is like one contraction.
2: Yeah, maybe.
1: (laughs) Okay, and and so and so, you know, if you go into it with like, okay, this is this is like Carrie said, a means to an end. I I think it kind of helps prepare you. Um, so that that's kind of the the first part of, of testing with tubes.
0: So Carrie, um, say you go into that test and you find out that your tube is blocked say it's blocked right where it connects with the uterus. What does that mean for you as a patient and kind of what would you recommend?
2: So the anatomy of the tubes, I mean, when when someone says tube, you kind of envision a a plumbing line where you've got one piece of PVC pipe that connects from point A to point B and it's uniform all the way through. And the tubes aren't really like that. They, They graduate in size. So the, the part that is connected to the uterus is called the interstitial portion. And this is the part of the tube that is very thin, very tiny, very small diameter, and it actually inserts into the uterus. So that is what is actually connecting with the uterine cavity. The next chunk is the isthmus. Section and um, that's followed by the ampullary section, which is just a little bit wider, and then the infundibular section, which is even wider, and that's where the fimbriae are. And the fimbriae are like these little fingers that, when you look at some of the, the videos online, there's there's one in particular that's really just a stellar uh, surgical video of a, a an egg that's being released and being picked up by the tube. Um, it was just a serendipitous. The, the surgeon picked it up and they were on video and they caught it. And it was, it's such a cool video, but, um but the tube all the way through is not a uniform uh, structure. So it starts off really skinny and then it gets really wide and that's got some implications to it. So if you check your tube test and you find out that the interstitial or proximal i.e. the section that is very close to the uterus is blocked then that has different implications and if you find out that somewhere later in the tube is blocked and the reason for that is like i said that interstitial portion is very narrow and tubes are finicky little organs um the uterus can take a crap ton of abuse because you can put a (laughs) baby in there grow it to the size of a watermelon evict it and do that multiple times over the course of a life And it's totally fine. And it'll just deal with it. Like it just kind of, you know, swats you away every month to say, I'm still here, pay attention to me, but, but it can deal with a ton of abuse. The tubes tolerate no crap. Mm -hmm. And, and so what happens is when you go in and you push that dye through, it sees it coming and it goes, uh, no, and it cramps down. And the result is it can show that the tube is blocked when it might be blocked but it might also be a tube that is just PO'd and is like, no, you're not doing this. We're done. So, when you see a tube test that shows a proximal blockage, so a blockage right at the entrance point, you know, it might be true, but it might not be. And so, that's one of the things that we always kind of consider as we're doing testing.
1: And HSD is a screening test. So it has false positives and false negatives. So this would be a situation where we're having a false positive. The tube may actually be open, but the test looks like it's blocked. Right.
0: So Carrie, what would you do if you saw that both of the tubes, the proximal tubes right where they connect with the uterus are blocked? What would be your next step or what should be the patient's next step, I guess is a better way to say that.
2: So a lot of it's going to depend on what the big picture is because If we're looking at someone who, you know, usually when we're ordering all these diagnostic tests, we're ordering all of of them at the same time because fertility patients are not really known for, let's go slowly. Um, (laughs) It's a, I want a baby yesterday, if not two days ago, and let's go now. And so at that point, I typically stop and take stock of everything. Because if you've got a guy who's got a really, really low sperm count and you know, or something you need genetic testing or something else is going on, then I'm really not going to put a huge amount of time into investigating the tubes earlier, because it doesn't matter as much. Are they blocked? Are they not? But for someone where all else is created equal, and they would otherwise have a full chance of getting pregnant, then it bears discussing, is this real? Or is this not real? And do we need to repeat this test with some more preventative measures like a stronger set to prevent cramping? Or do we need to go to the operating room where we can give you anesthesia, totally knock you out? I always tell people that my anesthesiologists are the best bartenders alive because <laughs> you take one drink from them and you are snapped out cold. Um, but it, the question is, do we want to go to the extent of doing a laparoscopy where we push dye through much more slowly and can give you extra medicines to make sure that this is not just a tubal spasm? that it's a legit blockage.
0: The other thing we'll do occasionally in our office too, or not occasionally, actually we do it fairly frequently, is we'll do saline sonograms sometimes. And I've had patients sometimes that have had tubal spasm like that with the HSG. And then you bring them in and you, you do a saline sonogram and you can see the little air bubbles go through their tube. And, you know, once you see dust or water spill out, you know that their tubes are okay. So that's that's another possibility as well. But, you know... You know at least
2: one is okay because it's easy to... You can see if the fluid's in there and then, all right, sounds connecting. Yeah.
0: And so if you got one tube, there's a chance for you to get pregnant, but I I always tell patients, there's not many things that we all agree on as reproductive endocrinologists, but if your tubes are blocked, particularly if they're blocked right where they attach with the uterus, we would all agree. Unfortunately, if the tunnel's blocked and the egg and the sperm can't get together, then ultimately that probably means IVF. So, um, so Susan, what would you do if you did that test and you found that the tubes were blocked at the far end, the distal end, like the fimbria, those finger-like projections were all... Clotted together all scarred together what would you do in that situation
1: well i i think that first of all just because they're blocked on a hsg just like we mentioned they're more likely to be truly blocked if you have a distal obstruction as compared to a proximal obstruction mm-hmm. however that's not a hundred percent what else
0: could it be then if, if you see it and it looks like it's blocked what else could it be what well could it-, it
1: could it could be a partial obstruction i i mean i i I usually don't expect it to be completely normal. I do kind of expect to see some scarring, maybe some endometriosis, different things like that. Um, at that point we start having a conversation. Um, so if they are thin tubes that are blocked distally, um, then we talk about is IVF something you would want to do. And if that's essentially kind of off the table or Absolute last, you know, course. Then we talk about doing a laparoscopy, a surgery where we actually go and look, see if there's something that we can um one, see if they really truly are blocked, because there are some times where you know we are able to, we are obviously able to exert more force and do different maneuvers while you're asleep as compared to when somebody's awake. Um And then surgically seeing if we can release some adhesions, create some, um, you know, more flexibility in in the ability for um, potentially flow to happen. I personally, again, this is one of those, you're going to get as many different opinions as you do have doctors. Um, I'm not a big proponent of fixing distal tubal blockage um, because Um, at the time in my career, when I did more of that, I had a lot of ectopic pregnancies and that that's a risk, you know, a very risky venture for my patients. And so I, I talk about that with my patients about, you know, if it, if it looks like they're really beyond repair, you know, I may still recommend doing IVF. Um, I, I, I am not into like huge heroic measures to save tubes, um, because I think in, in a lot of circumstances, it's actually more dangerous than the other option.
0: I will say though, over the years, when we did more laparoscopy, like we as physicians, we used to do laparoscopy more readily as part of the initial workup to look for endometriosis. And we don't really do that so much now because it puts you through a risky surgery that you may not need. But back when we did more laparoscopy, you know, it's it was somewhat surprising to me that You know, a lot of times you look or sometimes you look at an HSG and for all the world, you'd think the tube was blocked and dilated. And then you go in and you'd be like, okay, those tubes look great, you know. Yeah. So it, it is possible that they're normal. But I'm like, Susan, I think over the years, what I've evolved to now, and this is just me personally. But if I see tubes and they have filmy adhesions, meaning if you can see through the adhesions and they look kind of like saran wrap, like, you know, you can look through them. Those are the ones that I've had some success. If you can lice those and kind of free up the tube, like if the tube is tethered down and can't really move, I think that's probably the benefit because opening the tubes is only part of the equation. The other part of the equation is if they're all tethered, if the tubes tethered down and can't really move around, probably it's not gonna be able to pick up the egg as, as easily as it would normally. And so I would repair those. For ones where they're blocked on the distal end of the tube, and I've done plenty of those, they just don't turn out very well. Uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, a month or two later, you'll do another tube test and that tube that you've repaired will be scarred shut again or, or loculated. It's just, and then you end up potentially having to go back in for another surgery. So if it's completely blocked and I there's no opening there, then that's not one I would recommend trying to fix.
2: The other thing to consider is that the tube is not just a passageway. So this is not like it is a that plain PVC pipe where it is just a conduit from one one place to the other. There's also these little cilia, which are tiny little hairs on the inside of the tube. And what these hairs do is they help push the egg down to the middle of the tube. They help uh, move the sperm up to the middle of the tube um they provide binding places for the sperm to bind and then like slingshot into the egg and then once they're together of course that embryo doesn't have any any mobility to it so it needs those cilia to move it from mid tube back down to the uterus where there is room to grow and so if those cilia are damaged by anything then then we're we're kind of stuck because it puts you at a much higher risk of an ectopic pregnancy. And that's, that's part of the reason why most fertility offices in particular are just super anal retentive about you have a positive pregnancy test. Okay. You come in, we'll see you tomorrow. And okay, let's see you in two days or four days. And and we follow those levels really closely because if someone's got an ectopic pregnancy and the levels are not increasing as they should, Because those little cilia have been damaged and they can't move the embryo, we got to know about that as soon as possible to to prevent damage and prevent risk for you as the patient.
1: So Abby, what, what, what are things that maybe in somebody's history that would perhaps predispose them to real legitimate tubal blockage? So you mentioned
0: endometriosis. That's one of the common ones we see because endometriosis is almost when you have that, it's almost like somebody sprayed super glue inside your abdomen. And so
2: like gorilla glue glue
0: spray, perhaps like gorilla glue. (laughs) Yeah. And so of all the things in your pelvis, those little fimbria, like Carrie said, are the most finicky particular things there. And they're much more likely to get stuck together if there's some sort of inflammation. So endometriosis can cause inflammation. Other things that can cause inflammation. If you've had an appendix that ruptured, for example, um, that can cause inflammation. That's kind of a big red flag for us as reproductive endocrinologists when we see that on your history. Um, if you've had major surgeries like bowel surgeries, that can cause adhesions and scar tissue. And then the other one that we see is pelvic inflammatory disease. So if you've had you know, history of chlamydia or gonorrhea, um, then those are also things that can cause inflammation inside the body cavity that can cause the, the tubes to adhere together. Um, and so in those situations, generally, if we really truly believe that your tube is blocked and dilated, then uh, there's certain situations where we would actually talk to you about actually going in to take out the fallopian tubes before we proceed further. And Carrie, what would you say about that? When would we recommend taking out the fallopian tubes?
2: So if they're damaged beyond a shadow of a doubt, um, then we typically don't. Uh, then we typically don't want them to stay in there. Um, if someone has pain from them for sure we want them to come out you know if you're about to go through IVF and you've got a big old dilated tube the thought is that that tube is pushing some fluid back through the uterus and we don't know if that fluid is toxic to embryos or if it just you know functionally flushes them away but we don't really want that hanging around So those are typically the situations we would say, all right, let's, let's yank them.
0: So this is a little more challenging one, Susan. I think this, we may, we, the three of us may differ on our opinions. What if you had somebody that showed up to your office that you did the whole workup on them? They were a new infertility couple. You found out the only problem was that the female partner had one block fallopian tube. What would you do in that situation? Would you take it? Would you leave it? What would you do?
1: Yeah. So, so what I typically do is I talk to the patient, um, talk to them about the, there's the option of surgery. We could redo the HSG, you know, with those types of things, but with one, one functional fallopian tube, there is still the opportunity for pregnancy again, whether it's proximal or distal, if it's a pro if I have one side that's proximally blocked, you know, I think there's a much higher chance that that's going to be a false positive. Um, and I would say nine out of ten times, I probably end up if the patient's wanting to do super ovulation with IUI. I usually move on to that, making a note that they were a potential ectopic pregnancy risk. Yeah, you know, above and beyond everybody else. But um, I, I don't, I don't usually send them. You know, straight to the operating room. Um, most patients aren't that excited to have surgery. You have the occasional patient that really wants to have a a full answer, but um, surgery takes time. It takes money. Um, it takes, you know, time away and energy away from your other activities. And, and it's not like a hysteroscopy where you're back doing the same thing the next day. You're usually taking a number of days off of work and your normal routine.
0: What about you, Carrie? What would you do?
2: again, I pull back and look at the full picture. I mean, if everything else is created equal um, and I also kind of walk through the patient and say, all right, you know, anything that's enough to insult this one tube, when you look at the, the distance, the tubes are apart, you know, the uterus is roughly the size of your fist and your tubes, if you make a fist with your thumb up on top and you put your index finger and your thumb out, that's kind of the distance between the tubes. So they are not that far away. And so I always counsel to high heaven about ectopic because that's that's what will wake me up in the middle of the night, both literally and figuratively. <laughs> and, and so that's what I want to avoid. But if they want to do an IUI, I will do it. I just, I tend to have a, a shorter leash on them of if this is working great if it's not we're not going to waste time on this because i i don't want somebody to waste their time and their money and their their fertility goodwill which is uh you know a very real concept of how long you're willing to go through treatment before you're just like screw it i'm done um on on something that's got a low likelihood of working which iui kind of does a baseline so so i'll let people do it i just i counsel and counsel and counsel about it
0: yeah. And I think, I think we all do that too. Yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of a, the same mindset over the years. I mean, I can think of two or three people that I really was surprised. I had that con- conversation about, you know, do we want to go to surgery? Do we want to take it out? And by golly, two or three months later, they were pregnant. <laughs> and so I kind of, I do tend to sort of watch them. I usually after about three or four months, I say, let's regroup and revisit this and talk about it. And then also intuitively what we didn't mention is that, you know, if you've got a block tube, say on your left side, we probably want to have you come in for ultrasound to monitor your ovulation, because if you ovulate on that side, you're probably not going to get pregnant. So it's really only the months that you ovulate on the side where there's an open fallopian tube that you're more likely to get pregnant. And you may even want to consider doing intrauterine insemination or even, you know, medicine to kind of help because those two things together are probably better than either one separately. Um, so, so I think this has been a great conversation. I would like to say one, I say, like to say one more thing, one more thing. <laughs> you got the last word, Susan. <laughs>
1: So the last word is, though, I have seen people get pregnant from ovulating on the opposite side of their tube. So yeah, it, it is, is possible. It is not impossible. Um, you know, but it's also, not likely. <laughs> I, I would say you have less likelihood but it's not impossible and also know your ovaries do not rotate each month so just because you ovulate on the right side this month it does not mean they're going ro- to you're going to ovulate on the left side this, the next month it's one of like the biggest myths in OBGYN like world
0: that is Absolutely true. Well, and that's why too, it might be worthwhile for your doctor to put you on like Femara or Clomid because it may make it more likely that you may ovulate more consistently on the good side. Yeah.
2: The other thing is, if we're talking about the very rare events, it is possible for someone who has completely and totally blocked tubes to come back later with the pregnancy. And this is not likely. Possible is different than probable is different than likely. So <laughs> no, please, everyone and any fertility docs who are listening to this, who your patients who are listening to this, I'm not advocating... Oh yeah, try naturally when you have two blocked tubes. That is not what I'm saying.
0: (laughs) Well, what you're really saying is maybe the tubes aren't really blocked is what you're really saying. Well, no, what I'm really saying is that if you've been told you have blocked tubes, but you
2: feel weird and you think you might be pregnant- Take a pregnancy test. Take a pregnancy test and check because there's, I mean, very few of us say always, or never. And I I was in a surgery where it was me and another very experienced doc, and we were pushing dye through. And, you know, given her all the medications ahead of time, nothing came through, it looked like someone had sp- put rubber cement in her pelvis her endo was awful and then she came back to me and a, a couple months later she was pregnant spontaneously and so you never know. You know and this was after doing IVF and and I still stand by the decision to do IVF because those tubes were blocked I swear
1: yeah
2: but um if you think you might be pregnant check the pregnancy <laughs> test but no, we don't we don't rely on miracles. We are grateful when they happen, but they are not a, typically a form of medical treatment that is advised. Okay, now I'll be quiet.
0: All right, Carrie got the last word. So, to our audience, thanks for listening. Tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also visit
2: fertilitydocsuncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit any specific questions that you have about fertility. We've been getting some awesome ones in recently. Um, the questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously in our Ask the Doc segment. So, don't hold back the more embarrassing, thorough, technical,
0: weird, whatever, the better.
1: All right, we'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye, Bye everybody.